Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to episode 136 of the BJJ Brick Podcast. My name is Byron. I'm here with my good buddy, Gary. Gary, how's it going, my friend? It is going great. How about you, sir? Doing good. We, uh, we're we getting this show put together here. Uh, usually we do a show like maybe a week ahead, but we're doing this show the night before, so uh, it's coming at you at a more close-to-live situation. <laughs> so if we're talking fast, it's just because we're trying to get it on air and get it edited and everything real quick. There we go. We do it. Depending on which time zone you're in, we, we put our show every, every Monday. Is, is what it ends up being for us, but uh, we're happy to be here. we got a great show, Gary. This week we have uh, for the first part of our interview with Travis Stevens. Travis Stevens is has been on the United States Judo team twice, so uh, it's an honor to have uh, somebody of that caliber on the show. He's uh, our second Olympian. We also had Adam Wheeler on the show, and uh, that was a great interview, and so I was like, i got to find uh, another way, one of these athletes like this, and found Travis Stevens' black belt in... Uh, BJJ and judo, of course. So uh, he shares his story, shares some advice, and uh, it's a great interview. You know, we're getting pretty big time uh, with our second Olympian on the show. That's uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, we're just trying to find uh, people that could uh, share their story and, and, and really share some advice to people. That's, that seems to be some of our uh, things that we go for a lot, Gary. Yep. So definitely uh, two different shows. Don't miss this week, which you're not missing if you're listening to it. And don't miss next week because we've got Travis for both uh, shows. Yep. One way that people have found that helps them not miss the show is to get on our email list. Quick and easy to do this. You go to our Facebook page or on our uh, website, bjbrick.com, and uh, put your email address, put in your name real quick. And every week we send you out the show notes. So we, we refer to the show notes. It's going to have links to you know Travis Stevens' websites and all this stuff, and, and it'll be in your email box. And it's just a reminder, hey, the show came out. Check it out. This is what's happening. So uh, that's, that's been a, a great way to help keep in contact with everybody. And uh, there you go. If you ever want to email us, just take that, open that up. Uh, send an email right back at that. It's at bjjbrick at gmail.com. So uh, that's one easy way to stay in touch with us. And speaking of our show notes, we also have a link to uh, Byron's audio book. Uh, it's called Your First Year in BJJ. It's only $11.99 for two and a half hours of content. And it's basically uh, a roadmap uh, guiding you through your first year of jiu-jitsu, which uh, uh, we all know is a very tough year. It's, it seems like if you make it past that first year, you're going to stick with it. And uh, uh, it's got a bunch of chapters in there. But uh, the very first chapter is uh, picking the right school. And we all know that uh, is very important for your success. Uh, try some schools out. Make sure you the school fits with you. And uh, it's going to make it a lot easier in your first year. So check out Byron's audiobook, Your First Year in BJJ, only $11.99. And we have a link to it on the show notes. There we go. Thank you, Gary, for the kind words. And, and I hope the book is helping people out. And uh, uh that's that's the goal with that, I think, Gary. Yeah, we just want to uh, share the art of jujitsu and uh, make uh, make have more people stick to it. The more people that stick to it, the better jujitsu is going to become in this whole world. So that's what we're after. This week we have a quote from Dennis P. Kimbrough. Do you happen to know who that is, Byron? That was the original person that uh, Dennis the Menace was uh, uh, modeled after, I believe. 
I could okay. be, yeah, I could be wildly wrong on that, Gary, but that's what pops into my head. Well, somebody told me Dennis the Menace was also a brown belt with a wrestling background, and that's why they called him the Menace. But oh, yeah. But this quote is from Dennis P. Kimbrough, who we actually do not know who he is. But it's a great <laughs> quote. Uh, his quote is: "Life is ten percent what happens to us, and ninety percent how we react to it." That's, so true. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, people, uh, first off, try not to to judge yourself compared to everybody else, but people do that and they see people, Oh, they have an easy life. They got it going on. This is, um, that's just not really a healthy thing to do, but really everybody has struggles. Everybody has setbacks. Everybody has challenges that they, that they'd rather not even deal with, you know, and, and it's how you react to those things, good and bad. I mean, if you, if you win a tournament, do you suddenly have sky high confidence? You don't train as hard for the next one, and do, do you get get bored with the sport? Do, do you know what I mean? Or if you lose, do you want to quit? It's 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 how you react to things that are happening in your life that uh, that, that really shapes the type of person you're going to be and, and the kind of life you live. Yeah, you can have a bad practice, get tapped over and over and over again in practice, and and you can hang your head, gloat about it. It's going to ruin the rest of the day. It's probably going to ruin the next day. It might even ruin your practice. Or you can look at it and say, you know, hey, I learned a lot in practice today. I got caught in this numerous times. I asked some questions of the guy who was catching me in it. I learned an escape. We drilled it a little bit afterwards. And, uh, hey, I I just look at it as a learning experience. And you just – so many times uh, something bad happens and we get down or, or as Byron said, we win a tournament and we're sky high, but that doesn't mean our confidence is just going to explode and we're not going to train again. We're going to get right back in the gym and uh, do what we normally do to make us happy. We're going to train. Yeah. Gary, let's look at this a little bit deeper maybe. Let's say somebody applied for a job, didn't get it. You know, is it – let's say it was in an industry that they were really excited about. Um, you know, do you suddenly – have negative feelings towards the industry or do you keep trying and, and try to like, well, maybe that wasn't the right company with this. Maybe that wasn't the right position for the the job that I want to get and, and try to try to figure out maybe what's wrong. Maybe you can get better and that sort of thing versus just this happens to me. They don't like me. I can't get hired. That type of <laughs> attitude. Myself, I would sue for uh, gender discrimination, <laughs> age discrimination. I'd find some reason to sue. But no, kind of like Byron's talking about, hey, I didn't get the job, but uh, hey, I'm going to go on to the next one. Um, maybe maybe I didn't interview well. Maybe my resume wasn't great. Maybe I didn't dress properly. You know, I need to do a little bit of homework instead of uh, putting my head down, which if I put my head down and I, I react negatively, it's probably going to show in my next interview. I'm probably not going to have the tone of my voice is not going to be positive. I may hang my head, you know, a little bit, which, you know, any any little thing, any negative thought is, is going to hurt you going into an interview. So uh, definitely, uh, you know, look at it as a learning experience. Let's all learn from, from everything, all setbacks. Yeah, and I would just try to say that maybe uh, the job looked great on paper, you know, and, and, and especially if you're needing a job right now, but maybe it wasn't really the right job for you. And that right job could be around the corner any day. You don't know what's, what's coming. And, and even, so the same thing, maybe you get a job that you really don't like, but maybe you're still able to have some fun with it and, and still work with some good people. Uh, and, or maybe, you know, maybe people aren't that great. Maybe the customers you're helping are, are really uh, deserving of some great help that you're able to do. I don't know. Try to find the, the, the good find in your positive. day. Yeah. yeah. Like what I would have said, if I didn't get that job, I would have put it in my head that that job was going to have a ton of overtime. I was going to work Saturdays and Sundays, work late at night. 
I wouldn't have been able to train jujitsu. I don't want that job. <laughs> and that's how I rationalized it. There you go. This is what it, so you would just move on and uh, find something different. True. Good quote there, Gary. And uh, we note to self, we should probably research who the people that say the quotes are somewhat. But uh, thanks, Dennis. We should, yeah, we did say the name. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't know anything about the person, though. It's kind of funny. Yeah. yeah, but Dennis has a great quote. Yep. After the quote, of course, uh, leads us right to the article of the week, where each week we bring you a different article, kind of just to give you a variety of the show. You know, we're going to have um, Travis Stevens on the show, a lot of a lot of talk about jujitsu and judo and, and his perspective. Uh, this I, think, I always like the article of the week because it brings in a different person's perspective, and we get to kind of talk about that and have a good time with it. This week, uh, the article is called "Your Promotion Is Not Your Report Card." And it's on uh, showtheart.co. I will put a link to it in the show notes and uh, that we can check it out there because we're not going to read the entire thing, obviously. But uh, basically, uh, you get a stripe, you get a belt. Uh, That's great, but it's really not telling you how you're doing or what you need to work on. These are two different things. Uh, A report card versus a little bit of recognition. You know, if I tell you that you need to work on your mount escapes, but you still get your stripe, you know, the next week. That doesn't mean your manscapes are any better. It still doesn't mean it's not an area of weakness. But, you know, uh, recognizing that, hey, you got a stripe, good job. But uh, the report card, I think, is a the or the, the feedback of what you need to work on, the critique, is often, uh, you need to seek that out a little bit versus just kind of wait around for it. You know, you might, what did I do wrong? Or, or how could I have got out differently? Or, or these sort of things that doesn't happen when you get a promotion. You know what I mean, Gary? Yeah. Um, the author, uh, Christopher Bosquet, and sorry, Christopher, I probably pronounced your last name wrong. But, you know, he talks about every three months, he takes a moment after the class to uh, talk to his professor. And every three months, he, you know, he asks for an assessment and, you know, and where he's going. What should he, what should he do, what should he do um, to get better? And uh, I think that's a great idea. I've, I've never done it myself. And, and after reading this, I think it's an awesome idea. And like, it's just, uh, he's getting a, a feedback from his instructor. Not, not necessarily just a promotion, but stuff he needs to work on. Where are you at, you know, compared to how long you've been training? Is there anything else you can do better? Um, what do you do? Even know, talk about your strength. What do you do really good, too? It's always good. But I just thought that was a great idea. And, uh, you know, every three months, it doesn't have to be exactly every three months. You can follow Christopher and do it that time. Or, or you could do it every month, uh, every six months, whatever works best for you and your professor. Yeah, I think this is just a smarter way to kind of think about your training. Uh, sure, you just got your blue belt, but that doesn't mean that you can't also get some feedback because even at the blue belt, you're not perfect. You know, even at black belt, still evaluating, trying to find things I need to work on and trying to find um, which area of my game needs work. Uh, I could continue to, to build these, you know, the BJ brick techniques the, the techniques i'm really good at already make those even better make those techniques even stronger or i could look at my game and say okay what technique would go well with this one my next brick would kind of pile on that one and, and make a good combination or maybe i keep getting caught in uh you know every time gary gets mount i end up getting tapped with an arm bar okay i need to figure out what's going on with that and uh you know maybe this is a great time i get help from gary on this one because Obviously, he's finding something I'm doing wrong, and uh, and he's probably the perfect person to help me out on that. But that's more of looking for the feedback, like the report card style, 
you know, what can I, I do differently? What do I need to work on versus the recognition of getting a stripe or a belt or even a congratulations on your tournament type of thing? Another uh, benefit, which which I didn't even think about, but he, he talks about um, a benefit is the process is the avoidance of burnout. And basically what he would do is he would have such high expectations and it, they were very tough to live up to. Um, you know, he's blindly trying to achieve those goals. He'd get there, he'd hit the marks. Um, but once he got there, man, he worked so hard, he was mentally burned out. He couldn't really enjoy anything. And just by having these feedback sessions with his professor and upper belts, he was realizing that, you know, he probably set everything a little too high. And uh, basically it's just, uh, you know, it just made him realize that, hey, I'm doing great. I, you know, it's, uh, I don't, I'm setting unrealistic expectations. I'm hitting him, but I don't need to put that much pressure on myself. So I thought it was pretty cool when he was talking about, you know, it just takes uh, some of that pressure off. Yep. Go by the website and read the article. I'm going to read the last uh, couple of sentences here because I think it, it says a lot. Um, Do not lessen the joy and accomplishment of feeling when receiving a stripe or a belt. Understand that recognition and critique are two separate things. We will receive recognition when earned, and we will receive critique when sought after. More of the critique thing, you have to kind of seek after it. You have to kind of ask for help and, and what you need to work on. If you're the type of person who is open to critique and you let that be known, uh, it's a lot easier. If if Gary tells me, hey, man, every time I end up in Mount, your your right elbow just kind of pops up a little bit, and I grab it, and I tell Gary, oh, yeah, I'm trying to do a new thing, and, and I kind of act like I know that already, and I kind of act like I didn't need that advice, versus, thanks, Gary, uh, show me what you're talking about. And you're really open to that criticism, and you try to take that in and learn from that. I guarantee you, Gary's going to give me that feedback next time I need it too. Be a person that's open to critiques and learning from them, and they'll just start coming at you more and more, and that'll be a great way to to flatten your jiu-jitsu learning curve. Like Byron said, keep an open mind. Take the critique. If somebody's giving it to you, they're probably giving it to you for a reason. You know, keep an open mind and learn from it and ask for it. You know, ask, ask higher belts, ask your your uh, instructor, your professor. And uh, like Byron said, that'll flatten your learning curve. But, man, awesome article. Um, you know, it's at showtheart.com. We'll put a link to it. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Christopher, for the article. Yep, outstanding. Uh, Gary, uh, we can't keep the people waiting any longer. I think it's time to get on to uh, the one the only Travis Stevens. He is the most interesting grappler in the world. Once he rolled with Ike Turner on the river, inspiring Tina to sing. He bought a gi online and paid for it entirely with pennies. Pennies that he won as prize money from the Abe Lincoln Invitational. He is the only person to win two matches in a row via wedgie. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring Travis Stevens to the BJJ Brick Podcast. Travis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. This is uh, very exciting to have uh, somebody of your caliber, a high-level judo person on the show today to talk to, and you're also a jiu-jitsu person as well, so this is going to be a lot of fun. (laughs) It should be. (laughs) Could you um, 
maybe get us like, like a little personal history about you and, and maybe a little bit about your, uh, your past and kind of bring us up to speed. So I started judo a couple weeks before my seventh birthday, and I pretty much fell in love with it ever since. I was always a dual sport kid growing up. You know, I did whatever sport was in season, but year round, I always did judo. You know, going to soccer practice, then going to judo practice, going to t-ball, then judo, until I was 11. When I was 11, I suffered a serious knee injury, and I couldn't play sports for the next four to five years of my life. So all through middle school, freshman year, high school, like the end of my fourth grade, fifth grade, no sports whatsoever. So when I finally came back into sports towards the second semester of my freshman year, I got back into tennis. I really like it, still enjoy playing when I can, Um, but really came back to judo full time that summer before my sophomore year and then never stopped. Made my first Olympic team five years later, four years later. Uh, yeah, somewhere around there. And then, you know, picked up jujitsu uh, when I was out in California because the place I was training at for judo didn't offer like morning classes or afternoon classes because it was primarily school based. So Dave Camarillo actually let me train at AKA in his morning classes just to get extra workouts in. It wasn't so much teaching as much as it was, let's just work out and give some pointers along the way. And then uh, ended up leaving San Jose, got thrown out, lost the scholarships, um, moved out to New York, trained for the 08 games. And then before London, I suffered a serious foot injury where my foot turned like 180 degrees around. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got to know Henzo. And I actually took on BJJ as like a sport and fell in love with it between like his guidance and John Danaher's guidance. Um, And have never looked back since and don't plan on it. Well, that's good. Um, You hurt your knee pretty badly at 11 years old. What, What happened there? We were getting ready for junior nationals over the summer and everyone was training hard. You know, we had a couple of national champions from our club and medalist and the coach decided to give us like a little bit of a break from beating the crap out of each other. So we played this game where we took our belts off and we put them in like a big circle to make like one big circle. And we put all the kids in the circle and if you stepped out of the circle, you were out. Kind of like a a Royal Rumble sumo match type thing. Okay. And there was only a few of us left. And one of the kids saw that my back was close to the edge and he went to go shoot a double leg. And he was a quality wrestler. He even won a D2 national title uh, later on in life. And as he shot his double, another kid pushed him from behind and his shoulder actually hit me right in the kneecap. And he latched onto my ankle. I went down. He did a forward roll. And my foot actually came up to the front of my hip. And I had slight tears of all three ligaments, the LCL, MCL, and ACL. I tore the cartilage meniscus, had a fracture of my actual kneecap. The patella tendon was damaged. And I spent the next like six months in a leg brace and crutches, let the whole thing scar down. Had to learn how to walk again, 
So it it really stopped me from playing sports for a long time. I remember about a year after it had happened, I tried coming back to judo and I just couldn't, like my knee just wasn't stable enough to come back. And I ended up getting a concussion uh, from hitting my head off the floor from taking a misstep with my leg. And that's when my mom and grandparents decided to pull me out of judo for good and sports altogether. Wow. And that had to be very hard on you as a child to be just pulled out of everything and probably frustrating that your your body wasn't holding up the way you had hoped it would. I mean, I'm not going to lie. There was definitely a troubled time frame in my life where there was like a lot of acting out, a lot of like control issues, you know, things of that nature that a lot of kids go through even today. And it was worse. I mean, all kids have troubles when they're, you know, growing up and stuff, but it, it was worse because you didn't have the outlet of judo to kind of just burn that energy and, and, that, and that sort of thing. You think? Yeah. I could understand that. Uh, and so you, it sounds like you kind of came to other martial arts or jujitsu uh, just to kind of get time pushing and pulling people and grappling and, and just get some good cardio and get a good workout in. Is that, is that the case or is there more to it than that? There was a little bit more to it than that. That was pretty much what wrestling was for me. Um, I never wrestled on an actual team. I would just wrestle with wrestlers whenever I had the opportunity. I mean, I love learning. I love grappling. You know, most forms of it. Not all forms are the same to me. Yeah. Yeah. But jujitsu gave me a competitive learning environment that I don't really get from judo. I'm at that level of judo where like I would have to fly to like specific places in the world to get that real high level top 1% um, competitiveness. Whereas when it comes to jiu-jitsu, I could drive four hours and be at Henzo's Academy and train with the best in the world. I mean, there's guys in there that train in a gi that in my opinion, are better than most world champions. Because when it comes to competing, it's more strategy than skill level when it comes to jiu-jitsu. Like if you know a certain ref doesn't call stalling for two minutes and you can hang out, well, you can kind of play to the ref, play to the crowd, play to the match. I remember having a conversation when I was a brown belt with Keenan. He was a brown belt. And we were working out and he was talking about how you know, one of his best sweeps was from Spider Guard, and he would purposely not sweep people just because he knows he's going to get an advantage, and he could hold on to that for the next seven minutes of a fight. And it's like that's not really jujitsu to me. That's, I mean, obviously you it's sport jujitsu, and that's the rules, and you play to the rules when you want to win. But I love like the learning environment of jujitsu, the let's see who's going to submit who. It doesn't matter if I'm in side control or mount. It's about changing positions, gaining advantages, going for the submission, going for the back, even if it means risking a little bit. You know, almost like you see a Gary Tonin in certain positions, like he, he goes for it and that's, what we do there and that's what the room does and that's why there's such a high level of guys inside that room the idea that you're going for things not just staying safe all the time and 
I think an easy way to explain this would be just to, if you end up getting your clothes guard, to just keep it for the duration of the time or to open it up and to work on things. And yeah, you risk uh, some things uh, happening to you that may not be uh, that good, but you're not going to learn unless you try doing things. Yeah, there's a there's times when, you know, you should be shutting down your clothes guard. I was teaching class the other night and we were actually working on just closed guard and opening the guard and it was actually the advanced class and we were doing positional stuff and after three or four rounds I realized that some of the guys when they feel like their guard was starting to open they would go you know what I'm gonna open up my guard and then before you know it I'm gonna like start playing spider guard or throw my lasso in or get to my half guard because that's where they feel more comfortable instead of learning that for these two minutes three minutes of the fight when you're in closed guard, you stay in closed guard and you submit the guy from closed guard to better your jujitsu because that's what this drill is for. It's not free training time. It's specifically designed to where when you get your guard open, you should be getting back to closed guard. You have to know how to get there. You have to know how to submit from there. It's not a time to like keep it there. You feel like a little bit of pressure like it takes a little bit of endurance and strength training to like make sure you can keep those ankles locked. When the guy's trying to stand up and open up your guard. Yeah, and it goes yeah. both ways where the guy on top I noticed was constantly breaking grips. Well, yeah, you're not going to have like your ideal double collar sleeve grip every time you're going live. Like if the guy takes a cross grip, maybe you should still be trying to stand up and get used to dealing with it. Put yourself in those situations. Yeah, and that's and that's just a good way to train. And I think most of the audience is familiar with like the basic concepts of of drilling and how to do that. Like how I'm gonna maybe maybe you know I get mount on you, and for five minutes or for three minutes you you escape. We go back to mount. We escape. You go back and we do that. Or you know that I'm working for my guard, and if you pass, I go back to my guard. Or if I submit you, we stay and we do work more. Can you think of maybe some of your favorite drills for judo that you would do? For judo, it's re- it's really going to depend on where you're at skill level-wise. Like, f- for me, I do very specific drills for very specific reasons, for very specific people. I don't... Like, one of the the best drills we have is probably just move your partner around and then make an attack whatever the case may be. Like a lot of people can do fit in statically, like even jujitsu guys, like, or like wrestlers, like they can, they can like, okay, we're going to stand here. We're going to collar tie and I'm going to shoot a high crotch or I'm going to shoot a sweep single. Even jujitsu guys, like they can do that. But what you can't do is you can't create a rhythm between you and your partner to allow you to drill that while moving. And that's where, like, if you're watching a jiu-jitsu fight, there's no rhythm in the stand-up because both guys are so not uncoordinated but so scared about being on their feet about the outcome of what's going to happen that they're almost like two opposite sides of a magnet that are, like, pushing (laughs) against each other to get away rather than, like, wrestling and judo where, like, we're actually pushing into each other. And that's why the stand-up works because we're actually working. And that's one of the things I struggle with 
getting across to my students when they're wrestling, like your arm should never really be straight. When you're doing judo, your arm should never really be straight. But when you watch jujitsu fights, like everyone's walking around like stick figures or their hips are bent at a 90 or they're pulling guard before they've ever grabbed the gi because they're trying to do it along the way. So developing that rhythm of like being able to walk around without it being a dance is what's probably the most fundamental drill that people could really learn how to do. Because if I even take like advanced black belts that could like win national championships and I say, okay, grab the gi and move around, you'll notice that you'll see the same three moves just repeated almost like a waltz. Like it's like a one, two, three step, one, two, three step. And there's no actual like, I'm going to move you to my left, then I'm going to move you back, then I'm going to move you forward, then I'm going to move you to your left, then you're right. You can't, you have to learn how to control your opponent with your hands and with your movement. That way, if I want you to back up, maybe it's more about me getting close to you rather than pushing you. That way you back up on your own. And I'm not using all of my strength to necessarily move your body. Like the way you grab my gi is just as important as the way I grab your gi. Travis, this I'm loving this. This is uh, making sense to me. And, uh, and, and the examples you give, I think are really helping me out a lot. Um, so does, would this look like just two people each get a grip um, and they just kind of just, I guess, wrestle kind of or just push each other around and try to get uh, no, a feel think for about it more, think You want to think about it kind of like a dance, like the guy leads the girl, right? So if it's my job to be offensive and it's your job to just be my partner, it's both people working and both people are learning a skill. Two people always have to be engaged and be learning something from the exercise where the offensive person in in this realm is learning how to move his opponent with his hands, with his legs, with his upper body. Maybe he just twists in a certain way where the defensive guy is trying to feel and learn and sense where it is my partner wants me to go. Because if you can start to sense and feel when things are coming – that's when you can start countering and when you can start attacking. Because I know if I flinch my hands in a certain way, I'm going to get a certain reaction from my opponent. And that's why for judo, a lot of times the more advanced guys will struggle a lot with the mediocre guy because he's not going to give us those reactions that we need to win at the highest level. Because we're looking for those feints, those flinches, where like... The mediocre guy doesn't even sense it. He doesn't know he's in danger. And that drill is going to teach you and let you learn how to like sense and feel the stand-up game. It's, it's almost like watching a boxer where he's not just hitting pads, but he's also dodging the punches back that the guy with the pads is throwing. Like he just senses when it's coming and he knows. And it looks... It looks like a rhythm. If you've ever watched like a Floyd Mayweather or a Manny Pacquiao like hit pads, they're blocking and throwing at the same time. Just like I shouldn't take all my strength to move you to my right. I should be able to just move myself and have you go with it. Because you know where I'm trying to go and we're working together. You're sensing it. 
and I'm showing it. That's it's interesting hearing you talk about um, this drill, and I realize as I when I started jujitsu, of course we we do uh, a couple of throws here and there, and we we say that we're working on a little bit of judo, but you know it probably was hilarious if you were to see it. But to me, in my head, if I went to a judo class, I would be getting thrown like 300 times in one day, and it would just be, um, to me, like the idea of it always seemed like a, I, I don't want to get thrown three, like this many times, I'm gonna, my back's going to be sore, I'm going to be all beat up, and so I always kind of shied away from judo, but uh, what what does a, a judo practice kind of look like versus like a, we all know what jiu-jitsu practice looks like in, in, in a training day, but um you know, this drill kind of tells me that it's not like that. You know, it's a lot of other things besides just getting thrown into throw somebody, obviously. So what would if somebody's interested in trying a class, what would they expect going in? Before I answer that question, you said something that kind of like touched a nerve with me okay. that I'd like to touch on first. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry about that. Let's see what I did. <laughs> you said you learned judo. No, that's, yeah, that's what I thought I was doing is learning judo. It's like, yeah, I'm trying this. Like, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. This is my issue with that statement because I've done, and I get that question all the time. Like, I don't go to jujitsu class and learn judo. Yeah. That's not to say that, like, like John Donaher, for example, teaches stand-up in all of his classes. Doesn't matter if it's gi, no gi, doesn't matter. There's always a stand-up portion to his class. Now, to say that he may teach a Tayatoshi that's taught in that class and also taught in Judo is possible. But that doesn't mean that if John's showing you in a Jiu-Jitsu class, that you are now qualified to do Judo. Yeah. And what John teaches you in that class works very well for Jiu-Jitsu but does not work in judo. Just like what you learn in judo will not translate into jujitsu. And the easiest comparison I can make to most people to kind of understand what I'm saying is you cannot take a boxer and throw him into MMA thinking he's going to win. Yeah, he may throw that one punch that gets him that knockout, Just like that judo guy may score that one takedown and land in side control. But for the most part, they're two completely different sports that have similarities. And it'll give you, each sport will give you a little bit of a foothold into the other. But when you talk about excelling at one sport over the other, you can't cross the two. Because it doesn't make sense. Like I said before, like when we're doing judo, there are certain reactions and certain feints and things I'm looking for to get that Tayatoshi, to get Uchimata, to get my standing sale. That the jiu-jitsu player, because he's so unskilled at that position, just doesn't work. Because he has no idea what's going on. He's either in complete fear the whole time, or he's not going to stay on his feet long enough to get it to work. Or the grips and the way they hold the gi just doesn't suit how we do judo and vice versa for jiu-jitsu a judo guy can't go into jiu-jitsu thinking he's just going to take everyone down i'm more likely to pull guard in a jiu-jitsu match than i am to stay on my feet and try to throw you 
Is that just because it's so difficult to predict what the jujitsu guy is going to do? Because he's, it's kind of like rolling with a white belt, maybe because it, I don't know what they're doing. It's it's hard for me to to predict with opposed to like a higher level person. I know that they're going to escape this way. It's the best way to escape, and they're they're going to try to get out that way. Is that what um, I'm picking up? Think about it in this way: it it is extremely difficult to do anything to somebody whose sole purpose is to not let that happen. I can't, I can't honestly, if me and you were to get into a fight, I couldn't knock you out if my life depended on it. If your sole purpose was to not get knocked out because you could run away, you could create distance, you could slam a door in my face, you could hide in a cabinet. There's like so many things you could do where the rules of judo dictate that say you have to engage. And if I make three attacks to your nun, you're going to get a penalty because they see that as stalling. Where I watch jujitsu and like, let's say we're watching ADCC. Well, maybe I watch Keenan Cornelius shoot like six singles on his opponent and the guy runs out of bounds and there's no stalling call. Or maybe he fled out of bounds and there's no out of bounds. Like that's a penalty. Why did you run? Like the rules kind of dictate what can what you can get away with and what's also can actually be accomplished. Like the fact that a jujitsu guy can like double collar grab, stiffen his arm, stick his butt back and stand at a 90. But that's extremely hard to deal with. Even for a judo guy. Like even with my experience, it would take me a solid 30, 40 seconds to actually score a, a legitimate takedown with a guy who's somewhat athletic and is strong enough to maintain that position. And I'm an Olympian. Like the the way the rules work just aren't favorable for those takedowns. If I'm doing jujitsu and I'm competing and I'm standing up, my biggest fears are the guy jumping guard and breaking my knee, a guy jumping to a wrist lock, a flying arm lock, a jumping front headlock or just the guy pulling guard and sweeping me. Like those are all things that like you have to be considerate of before you even, before you've even touched the gi because he can legitimately run at you and try to wrap his legs around you and it's legal. And then he can even land on your knee, blow out your ACL and LCL. And then you've actually lost the match and he's won. It, like just the way the scenarios work, it just doesn't make sense to invest any time into that area of focus. I would much rather just trust in my jujitsu and just pull guard and not deal with any of it because I have a life outside of jujitsu. And if we happen to like, maybe I'm on bottom and I play in spider guard and I go for a sweep. And then as I try to get up, maybe he gets up and we're both standing. But at that moment in time, that's probably your best opportunity to score any sort of judo wrestling takedown. We're talk- in, in my opinion. Yeah. Travis, we're talking a lot about the, the different rules and uh, definitely some safety concerns popped up. Can you think of any ways that the rules could be changed in jiu-jitsu to make um, make the stand-up a little safer, and also maybe the rules could be changed a little bit to make uh, jujitsu people want to develop uh, better uh, takedowns? Um, I 
would scratch jumping guard until black belt. Um, if you can, I would allow uh, reaps of the knee from purple belt up. I don't understand why you can play a deep daily heva and put pressure on the knee, but you can't safely put the knee to that side. I'm a I'm a firm believer that when it comes to jujitsu, if you have an opportunity to tap and submit, then and you get injured, that's on you. Like if I jump guard and I land on your knee, well that's on me. Like I didn't do it properly, maybe you reacted funny, but there wasn't a situation where you actually had time to safely say, I want to quit and go home. It's a sport. So at any time you want to like, no matter how violent the match gets, if you have the opportunity to tap and just walk away, then it should be allowed. So I believe knee reaping should be allowed. I believe spinal locks should be allowed. Neck cranks should be allowed at the higher ranks. And I think the lower ranks need to be policed a little bit more. Like you shouldn't be doing flying attacks. Not everybody who competes and does jujitsu has the athleticism to control another individual who is jumping on them. And the way the rules work in jujitsu, you can't honestly tell me that they know what the IBJJF deems they should know at that rank. I get a lot of purple belts walking into my academy that can't do a straight ankle lock, that have never seen a wrist lock, that can't defend a wrist lock, that can't defend a straight ankle lock. They just tap and go, okay, I'm moving on to the next person. And those are things that are allowed at Blue Belt. And granted, there's like a big judge of people who could win world titles and not know those things, but they're allowed, which means there's a risk for getting hurt if all of a sudden a white belt comes from Sambo who wants to A, jump guard and do a wrist lock at the same time. Perfectly legitimate, perfectly allowed. And before you know it, like you have a blown out knee and a broken wrist. And you were in jujitsu for fun and for sport. I'm a firm believer that if you want a black belt and you want to be professional, anything goes. We both agreed to the terms of this arrangement when we stepped on the mat that we are here to hurt each other because we're professionals and that's just the way it should be. And you could argue heel hooks in the gi, not in a gi. Doesn't really matter to me, but I don't consider anybody who wins an IBJJF world title or Pan Am title at no gi decent at no gi because all you're doing is gi, jiu-jitsu, and a gi. Or no gi jiu-jitsu. Gi jiu-jitsu without the gi. Because you're not allowed to heel hook. You're not allowed to reap the knee. You're stuck with a couple of passes that don't really make sense. It's just a different atmosphere. So uh, less rules, obviously, is what you're saying for the, the more advanced, but definitely have a lot of safety rules and stuff for the, the lower-ranked belts. Yeah, 100%. Like... For stand-up, if you want to see takedowns, don't let people run out of bounds without penalizing them. If you're backing up and breaking grips the whole time, penalize it. Like they're even on the ground, there it doesn't make sense with 
the IBJJF rule system of I had a guy competing at an event who they were in like a weird position. Let's just call it 50-50. There was like a double guard pole position and they butt scooted out of bounds. And the ref brought them back to the middle and reset them. And he goes, go. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. And then in the same scenario, my player had the kid in an arm lock and the kid kind of like rolled belly out and they ended up out of bounds. But my player had his arm straight and the ref stopped it, brought him back into the middle and restarted them from neutral. Why would I restart a position that could be considered stalling, but not restart a position that could end a fight? Like the, like it, it almost, it's almost like they promote positional jujitsu versus attacking style jujitsu. Even at the Boston Open, I'd see guys like in on a deep single leg, and then the guy would like try to run it, hop out of bounds, and they'd restart in neutral. But if that had been a position they could reset on the floor, they would have done it. But they're not going to bring them back to the center and give the guy his leg and say, take him down. And it's just, the rules dictate the outcome of any fight, but you can't train judo and expect it's going to help you in jiu-jitsu. It'll help that you're on the mat more and you have a bigger arsenal to pull from, but we're talking about like small margins. Very small. In the two different, in jiu-jitsu and judo, uh, grip fighting is very important in both. Um, can you maybe compare the different styles of, of grip fighting and effectivenesses of them and maybe what you've brought to one or the other? Actually, I found that grip fighting and jiu-jitsu was a waste of my time. For jiu-jitsu, it's, it's not so much about being able to break the opponent's grips, but more about grabbing my opponent's gi in such a way that makes him feel uncomfortable, that makes him change his grip. Okay. And that was one of the things I was talking about before when it came to like the guard passing drill I was having my students do. Guys, it doesn't matter that he has a cross grip and he's threatening like a cross choke or threatening like a hip bump sweep. Learn to grab the gi in a way that kind of defends it and makes him rethink his position while you're still trying to get out. Most guys in jiu-jitsu will change their grips just based on the fact that you've changed yours. With uh, a judo player, though, it seems like, to me, if they when they grab my gi, I get thrown. And, and, and when I grab their gi, I can't hold on to it. Um, what's, what am I doing wrong here? What's going on when, when, when they're breaking my, my grip so easily? Um, they're breaking your grip easily because you're grabbing the gi too firmly. You're so stiff and rigid that like one of the, one of the drills that I have people do, like when I'm teaching clinics and seminars is have your partner grab your gi and then don't touch their gi and move them around the mat back to that movement drill. Right. Okay. Okay. And you'll realize that. I can move someone while they're holding on to the gi. So if you're fixed in one spot, like you're grabbing the gi as hard as you can, 
your feet are kind of like engaged into the floor as hard as you can and you're walking heavily, well, if I move away from you really quickly, that's going to apply tension to your grip if you're not keeping up. So it doesn't take that much energy to actually get the grip off. If you hold the gi lightly and your arms are loose, your grip will be stronger. Because when you feel that guy trying to rip his sleeve out, your arm will go with his arm rather than being fixed on a point. Now, granted, you could, if you were strong enough and had a strong enough grip, hold a guy's gi and then flex your arm and keep it in close and then he can't get it out anyways. But that's a higher level of skill than being able to hold on to it loosely and then say, hey, break the sleeve grip. And then as that guy tries to yank it out, you just follow his arm wherever it goes with your arm and you'll realize that he doesn't have the range to actually take it off. It sounds like maybe it's trying to break a, a green stick that kind of bends more versus a dry stick that may be a little bit thicker and stronger, but it just snaps. Yeah. And you also like miss- most of the time when we break grips, like I can break a lot of grips one-handed because I know how to push my opponent forward with my body so that he goes backwards, and then I can snap my upper body back while pushing on the grip. So both things kind of like clash together and then move apart quickly. So I get you moving one way, me moving the other, which is going to create like tension on the collar where you're holding, and then I can give a little push and it'll come off. And, and then you mentioned about the the closest your grip is to your own body, I guess is how I'm trying to describe that. But if I'm grabbing your your lapel and you're, I'm reaching out my elbows away from my body a little bit versus if it's a little closer to me, how much difference that is? Um, a lot. You know, there are situations in jiu-jitsu that that same information could be used for somebody to, to just to just keep things towards their core, or is it, can you think of maybe a position or a, something like that that uh, we could relate to? Um, most pressure-passing systems that I've seen, whether it be the guys at Henzo's or like a Lovato, you'll notice that they're always keeping their elbows close, their knees close to their chest, and they're trying to get inside their opponent's area, meaning the disc, the space between if they're laying on their back, their knees and elbows. If I can get inside that space, my opponent's going to be weaker than I am, regardless of size. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think it's the reason why sometimes somebody on the same side seems so much stronger. And they might be stronger, but if you... I don't know, lift weights with them, and okay, they're about the same. But when you get on the mat, it's unbelievable the difference of strength. But really, uh, there's technique, just principles behind that. Not even just techniques, but by them keeping close to their core and you kind of being away from yours, you're kind of at a disadvantage already. Yeah, you want to think about it. Your your ability to stay inside that small ball where your elbows are close to you, your knee is close to you. And if you can imagine like a knee cut pass, right? And I'm using like a right hand to cross grip, to apply pressure to the face, and my right knee is knee cutting. If I can keep your knees apart and your arms around me, it's easier for me to open you than it is for you to keep me close. Because close is what I want. It's you getting back inside me that's going to make things difficult. 
And you can see that from like the knee shield type positions where if the guy's playing half guard and he keeps his knee on your chest and your arm is around his leg, it's hard to pass his guard. But if I can keep my hands both inside between your legs, passing the guard is very easy. You can do simple things like X passing or knee cut passing or over under passing because you can keep his legs away from each other and the groin muscles aren't going to be strong enough to pinch you close. Like that muscle just doesn't work in that way. Just like if I can push your knees together, your ability to open your legs isn't very strong. The IT band just isn't developed in that way. Like if you were to just lay somebody on their side and lay on top of them, yeah, yeah, on their legs, their legs wouldn't open. Yeah, you've, you're uh, taking out their the strong muscles move the the legs up and down, not side to side, and, and yeah, it's like the old the guys that wrestle the alligators. They get on there and they put a rubber band around their their mouth, and the alligators can't do anything. It's the, the weak muscles is what you are laying on there when you lay on someone's legs like that, and they're not going to lift you. They're not going to move you. But those pressure passers like Lovato, even the Mendez brothers do it. They know where the body is weak and that's the only thing they attack. Like if I can, and this is a big thing with a lot of the uh, beginners is if you put a foot on my hip and I start to back up and your leg starts to go straight, well, you've lost all your power. Like at no point in jujitsu should your arms or legs ever really be fully extended. Because once they're fully extended, I can no longer generate space. And if I didn't have the space at somewhere in the middle of my legs and arms being extended to actually do what I wanted to do, then there's a problem. Like if I'm in side control and my arms are fully straight and I can't recover guard, we have an issue where... I am either extremely open to being submitted or my fundamental escape isn't correct. Because that's a lot of excess space between your arm reach and their body. Yeah. So in that example, maybe um, instead of pushing your arms all the way out, you would extend your arms a little bit and then also try to move your hips away and uh, meet the ground halfway there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, once I mean, once you, I mean, it's like telling somebody to stand up taller. Once your legs extended, you're done lifting them. Once your arms extended, you're not going to push them any further. Uh, yeah, you can't stand any taller than you probably do. You, know, you can straighten your posture up a little bit, but yeah, that that makes sense a lot. And and so once you reach that range of, of motion, your your strength is done, and your ability to move somebody is, is also uh, taken out of the picture. Travis, it's not. I've only had I had. Uh, Adam Wheeler on the show. He was an Olympic wrestler. So this is only the second time we've had an Olympian on uh, on the show. Uh, I got to know what's it like to be an Olympic athlete. How do things change? It depends on how you want to look at it. You know, like we travel the world, going from gym to gym, hotel to hotel. Um, most people would call that exciting, but the grass is always greener on the other side. It's got that theory to it. Like a lot of people like, oh, I'd love to go to Italy. I'd love to go to Spain. I'd love to go to Japan, Korea, wherever the case may be. But at the end of the day, like when you do it every day, to us, 
we like idolize the guy that actually gets to stay home. Like none of us get to have a pet. None of us, like we pay bills for things that we never get to use, like cars, rent, internet, cable. Some of us don't even have cable like myself because we travel so much. It's not even worth it. Um, the experience on the other hand is twofold. It's either going to be the greatest experience of your life or the biggest letdown of your life. And I think every Olympic athlete goes through the letdown stage of the Olympics because most of us spend, I'd say 60 to 70% of our natural born lives training for this one opportunity to represent our country and win an Olympic medal. And whether you win or lose, when the games are over, there's kind of this drought of what do you do now? Like you're 20, you're 27, 30 years old. Your life is only one third of the way over and you reach the pinnacle you can and all of your goals in life. And you're kind of starting from scratch and creating new opportunities and new things. And you're leaving a big section of your life behind and it's nerve wracking. It's scary. You're not sure if you're going to be successful because you've only done one thing your whole life. So a lot of athletes go through like a, a depression because we don't make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Most of us trying to make it. And there's only a very few number of us who actually win medals. And then there's only a small percentage of people who actually make money after winning those medals. For judo athletes, it's even more difficult than others because our training schedule and our traveling schedule is so high compared to most sports that we can't go to college at the same time. You would just fail out, which is what's happened to most people. They either go to school and dabble in judo internationally and then graduate and then make an Olympic run or they make their Olympic run and then spend their savings being able to go to school the next four years to actually graduate. There's not a lot of outlets for athletes in a lot of sports to keep them involved in the sports. Jiu-Jitsu is very fortunate to have academies and a society that's willing to pay for information where judo and some other sports don't have that. Judo and other sports don't really say they don't have that. How how is the comparison between the different cultures of of judo and jujitsu? They are complete opposites. Travis, I'm I'm more familiar with the culture of uh, wrestling, and I and it's easy for me to understand the differences of wrestling in judo just culture-wise and what's expected. Maybe you could kind of uh, help me with uh, the knowledge of, of, of wrestling and, and jiu-jitsu cultures to help me understand a little bit more about the judo culture. You know, judo was founded on the idea of we're supposed to give back. Like, 
my black belt taught me. I have my black belt. It's now my responsibility to teach the youth and the youth's responsibility when they get older to teach the youth to keep the sport growing. The, the problem with that is the judo is a very difficult sport to find because people misinterpret that I should give back mentality to I shouldn't charge for classes where jujitsu charges for everything and people, especially in America, see value in that. Just like you would pay to have your kid play on the higher level soccer team versus the city Metro Park League because there's value received. There's a higher level of coaching. There's a higher level of play. Maybe they play more games throughout the year. Uh, maybe the athletes are just more skilled in that area. Who knows? Where judo, everything is done on a, yeah, I'll help you basis. And we're all here as a community to help each other. So you're free to go from club to club to club to work out. You don't really have to pay anything. Most of it's done free or for very little money, like 20, 30 bucks a month. Where jujitsu like you're forced to buy the gi the rash guard you have to pay the membership you pay for private lessons you pay for extra classes the mentality of the two sports are just completely different and not necessarily from a yeah we all bow in like we count in japanese you guys count in portuguese or english wherever you're from um and judo tends to be on more of a a system like no matter where you go in the world if you say uchimata they know what you're talking about in jiu-jitsu a lot of times people will call something something just because some guy named it on youtube and there's not really a definitive naming or curriculum or a set series of moves that jiu-jitsu has that the community has like agreed upon like if somebody says 50-50 or closed guard or spider guard, yeah. But there's all these different sweeps and moves that aren't really written down. So it leaves room for like interpretation on how things should be done. Where judo is more like brick and mortar, like this is how it's taught, this is how it's done. And that's standard practice. And then once you get through the standard practice of it, it's a little bit more... Uh, this is how I do it versus how you do it because everyone's body type is a little different. A couple of the things that you've mentioned um, about being an Olympic athlete and then what do you do after that? And then, you know, as a judo person, it's really hard because you're not going through school and, and doing that sort of thing to prepare yourself for that second, second, you know, third of your life. And then also judo schools don't make a lot of money. Do you think that we would have better quality judo if um, it was just like the standard, I guess, or if or somehow uh, people expected to pay more money for judo? Maybe the people who uh, had a career at competing would look at, well, I could open up a school and support a family. I'm not going to get rich doing this, but I could at least uh, move on with my life and, and, and live a comfortable lifestyle by having a school. Uh, does that not really happen in judo because there's not the money there with it? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a definite yes, for sure. Um, like I, we have Olympians and team members 
for years that just aren't involved in the sports. Like, well, great start there, Travis Stevens. Part one of our interview. Uh, you know, this interview is happening, and I'm looking at the clock. It's like over an hour, and I'm like, "This is awesome!" I'm getting uh, wrapped in things, and uh, and I'm just excited to have him give us that much of his time and input and uh, knowledge and, and everything. So uh, I was excited when I happened to you know like look away and like this is a longer interview and I'm just getting wrapped up in it. Really excited to, to bring you two episodes with Travis Stevens. So uh, part two will be next week, my friends. So definitely don't miss next week. And uh, I wanted to thank Travis for uh, uh, part one and we'll hear part two next week. Yep. Uh, big thank you to everybody. We've uh, had quite a bit of growth in the BJJ Rick podcast uh, the past month and month or two, but the month here, and uh, haven't really done anything much differently on our part. You know, we're trying to bring in uh, the best guests we can. We try to have good conversation about jujitsu and have fun doing it, and uh, uh, not much different on social media or anything like that. You know, we've tried to post in Reddit and on our Facebook page and Twitter, but uh, we've had quite a bit of growth, and I think that's just because people are telling their friends about us. People are are on the mat, you know, and 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 maybe bring up the guest of the week and, and recommend that they go check it out because that's other than that, Gary, we're not doing anything special, and we've had uh, quite a bit of growth this this past couple of months here. So uh, really appreciate all the fans out there for spreading the word and telling their friends about us. Well, actually, Byron's being a little bit modest, Byron figures out the way the show's going to go and comes up with the, all the ideas. And and here recently, and I know Byron didn't happen to mention this, but we've done the, the Claudio segments on how to speak Portuguese, and we're on episode nine, so that's in the last two months plus one week. And uh, the YouTube question and answer uh, that this week Byron's got one, uh, you know, about a guy w- – talking about long distance running and, and jujitsu. So uh, Byron's just being modest. He has done a couple of cool things, but a big part is uh, like Byron said, everybody, you know, sharing and telling their buddies about the show. So thank you all. Yep, absolutely. And I'm great. glad you bring up the question and answer show. Uh, yeah. You send in a question. Uh, so it seemed like to me, we kept answering a lot of the same questions, Gary. And, and that's fine. People have questions, at, yeah, send them to most us. Most of the questions we got was for Byron, are you single? But mostly <laughs> they were from guys. And on me, it was more like, Byron, why don't you get rid of that, your sidekick? He, he doesn't bring anything to the show. Those were the, most of the questions we were answering. So uh, I figured, you know, with these couple of questions like Gary's talking about coming in, I could just answer them and put it up on YouTube. And if I get another question, a, a guy last week asked, hey, how do you manage to train uh, for a marathon and do jiu-jitsu at the same time? And, and he's having trouble doing that. So I answered that the best I could in a question. It's about or an answer about 10 minutes long. Threw it up on YouTube. And next time somebody has a question, I'll send them that way. And uh, we'll build a library of, of questions and answers uh, on this. So if you have a question, Jujitsu related, uh, send it our way, bjjbrick at gmail.com. I'd be uh, happy to uh, record a little video and answer your question. Uh, I've got one ready for next week after that. That's it, uh, out of questions. So we need a few more in the queue, my friends. So if you have any questions, uh, let us let it be known to us. Uh, we're on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. Uh, we're on Reddit. So uh, definitely uh, get us all your questions and answers. We're also on MySpace. Uh, actually, just kidding on that one. But, uh, <laughs> um, get us questions uh, and also uh, uh, give us reviews. Yep. Gary, we have a new way to support the BJJ Brick podcast, and that's on our website called Patreon. We've got a supporter, my friend, uh, <laughs> and he is our friend. Yes, he's a supporter. 
So um, basically, it's a way you could support people who produce content, artists, um, musicians, podcasters, whatever, on a per-episode basis. So uh, every uh, week we put out a show, and our supporter is pledging a dollar uh, per episode. So Gary, right now, our friends are giving us a dollar, and uh, and, we, and that that means a lot to us. I mean that that does mean a lot. That is a good Thank start you. to to reaching our goal. And um, at the so the different levels you could pledge. There's a dollar, a two dollar, and a three dollar. I'm gonna mention the three dollar real quick because the three dollar comes with both. Um, it all kind of built. Like you get what the two guys at two dollars get, and the and the one dollar. And basically, at the dollar level, you get uh, invited into the BJ Brick uh, private Facebook group where we're conversating about the next week's show, who I'm going to interview tomorrow, and that sort of thing, and trying to have fun in there as well. But at three dollars, you get a uh, a five inch BJJ Brick gi patch, the biggest BJJ Brick gi patch ever made, Gary. Ever made. <laughs> I mean, it could actually be in the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest. BJJ brick podcast or patch key patch. There we go. And so, so at the three dollar level, three dollars per show. That's that's a. I, I'm, I'd be really impressed if we get some people that are willing to support the show at that much. That's. I mean, that is a chunk of change. But uh, put your address in there. I will throw one of these in the mail and send it right your way. Uh, that's a tremendous amount of support. Help keeping this show. Uh, uh, to the level that we're able to put forth. And, um, Gary, we have some big goals in the future, and um, it's going to take a little bit of funding to to take the show to the next level. So uh, definitely uh, at the $3 level, you get that big e-patch, and you get a huge thank you uh, for the for the uh, support there. And we've got uh, 25 of those e-patches at the $3 level that we're uh, going to give out. So uh, act now. I guarantee you they're still available, but... <laughs> <laughs> they are available. So, uh, but it just it, it just means a lot to us, and, and it's just a small. You're not buying a patch for three bucks because really, in two weeks, it's going to be a, a, you know another charge. But uh, it's just a token of of a thank you to you and and what you're willing to do for us to help us out. So and let you believe in what we're doing. So um, if you have any questions about this, email us bjbrick at gmail Or I made a video talking about videos. I made a video explaining all this and what we're going to do once we hit our goal of uh, two hundred. Um, so, uh, crazy stuff on there. So if you want to learn about that, just check the video out, you know, and, uh, and you get to, to help us out if you want. All right, Gary, now we've got all that like housekeeping style work out of the way and try to keep this thing going here. Um, time to do one of the favorite segments of the show, uh, Gary's audio book. Oh, not again. Yes. Again, my friend, this is, so I actually made the audio book and we talked about that at the beginning of the show. Yeah. But Gary has yet to make an audiobook, so kind of just tease him, keep him on his toes. I come up with a new title every week, and he's got to come up with actual book content for you on the spot. Yeah, it's it's not my most favorite part of the show. It's when Byron actually tries to make fun of me through an audiobook with something I had said or did in the last couple of days, but uh, we'll see what it is this week. Yep. This, this audiobook is called The Great Calendar Mix-Up, Why I Wasn't Able to Go to the Olympic Games and Compete. And uh, basically, Gary, I think it, it was a scheduling thing. You thought it was on the off year, but I'm not sure about that, Gary. What really happened that year, and what event were you scheduled to compete in? What's going on? I thought you were going to be Olympian. You told everybody that you were geared up and ready to go. What's up, man? Well, as you know, back in high school, I was really big into uh, uh, pogo sticks. Uh, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, pogo sticks were really great for my my balance, which I use for jujitsu to help my uh, help my balance there. But uh, I think some of the uh, 
upperclassmen were kind of making fun of me because they'd see me on the, the pogo stick every day. So they decided to tell me that uh, I was so good at the pogo sticks that I should go sign up for the Olympics. I had no clue that you don't sign up for the Olympics. I wasn't very smart. So this book is just going to talk about how I trained on the pogo stick for you know anywhere from 8 to 10 hours a day. Um, so it was a uh, it was a tough training session. I trained all the time. And uh, it wasn't even Olympic year, but as, like I said, I didn't know that back in those days. So they told me uh, one day just to uh, show up down at the football stadium and uh, early Saturday morning and everybody would be there to be in the Olympics and I'd be going against the uh, Chinese who were supposed to be really good at it. So, you know, I trained really hard. And, and one thing I'm not happy about is I actually did use steroids to uh, get better. <laughs> Um, but uh, so I show scary. up and nobody was there except for the, the upperclassmen who, uh, you know, told me about it. And uh, they said that they got the year wrong, so I need to come back next year. So I did it again. I trained for a whole year straight, came back the next year, and there still wasn't anybody there. And even those upperclassmen were gone because they were going to college by now. So uh, I never did get my chance at the Olympics. If, if coach would only put me in. I would have won the state championship. And then on to the Olympics. I would have thrown the touchdown pass. Yeah. Gary, a lot going on there. Uh, th- I mean, I've always suspected the steroid use with your, uh, you know, the, the just the look of you, you know? Yeah, the overgrown chin <laughs> and the, uh, the uh, uh, estrogen, uh, I guess I can't say the word, but estrogen male chest i guess you will say it we'll say it that way to keep it pc okay yeah that's a little different there um just i mean just your muscles and alone just scream roids all the time gary i mean most people say i'm very skinny yeah you're a fit guy you're fit and you go to the y a lot but i just you know assumed that was the case but i didn't know you were you were juicing for the sick yeah yeah it was all <laughs> It was all I'm for keeping that in. Uh, yeah, it, it was all for that dream, and, and you know, it's just sad that you that you went down that road, and then the scheduling thing, and those upperclassmen throwing you off. And, and yeah, those darn upperclassmen. They, I'm just shocked that they actually convinced you to turn that pogo stick upside down and try to jump on it. Um, you know, I think yeah, you were a bit gullible that time. So, <laughs> pogo yeah. stick, Harry. Oh man, I was good at something. Yep. Jumping on the post. <laughs> All right, Gary, it's always entertaining to hear about your, your audiobooks. When's this thing coming out? This thing is coming out probably never. Okay. But I did think about it just now. Yeah, it would be it would it would it would get a few sales. You know, we could throw all these books together and and, and put a little price on them and uh, I guarantee you people people would want to get these books. Yeah, mostly uh my mom, my dad, that'd be about it. Well, that's all right. Yep, that's two. Yep. Speaking of people wanting more content, uh, people are are loving our segment with our friend Claudio, Gary. Definitely. Claudio is uh, teaching us uh, some words in Portuguese. And uh, like I said earlier, this is uh, episode number nine. And uh, this week, Claudio is going to tell us um, how to tell time and the days of the week. You know, two very important things. We need to know what time it is. Uh, we need to make sure we don't miss practice. We can't miss jujitsu practice. And we need to know what days of the week practice is on. So uh, definitely very, very uh, 
important uh, Portuguese lesson this week. All right. Thank you, Claudio. Here we go. Olá, Claudio. Oi, bem. Tudo bem? Tudo bem. Você, você fala português? No. Uh, no. no. Uh, you asked me if I speak Portuguese, which I barely caught. That's right. And, uh, and then I answered it uh, with an English version of the word no. <laughs> Perfect. So, You're doing good. You're there doing we good. go. At, at least you're catching it. That's the important thing. You're catching it. Uh, like I picture somebody trying to catch a ball and they're fumbling it around. That's kind of <laughs> what I'm doing here, Claudio. But uh, I appreciate the help. And um, as I, uh, you know, like I listen to these more than once, that's kind of a nice thing. And uh, and you're you're very friendly to listen to and to hear me struggle through the words might help people out as well. So. Um, last week we we learned uh, the word sorry, um, me disculpa, so I am sorry, or just disculpa for sorry, and then you also counted um, from one to ten, and I think okay. that would be nice um, to, I guess time is always relevant, um, you know, like so we have the numbers to back it up. Um, can we convert this into minutes, hours, and days, or or how to how to, how to tell time or speak time? Absolutely, yeah. Speak time. That's a would be a great name of a song or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's a, just following up from from last week. Um, dois, três, quatro. It's gonna be basically the same the same idea. So you just, for example, uh, let's just pick a uh, ten o'clock. Uh, so it'll be days days orders. So Orders. the o'clock part will be hours, you know, hours. So days orders will be ten hours. That's how you would say the the time. So days hours. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Days horas. Days orders. That's correct. Uh huh. That's correct. And let's say ten thirty will be days e meia or days e trinta. Trinta will be thirty. Meia. It's Basically half, oh. half past ten o'clock. So Daisy Maya is ten, and Maya is half. So ten and, and a half. Daisy right, Maya. Half. So it it, it depends. Uh, you can say ten thirty, like days trinta, just fine. Okay. Now, something interesting is uh, in Brazil, <clears throat> we use military. Um, time so after twelve o'clock will be thirteen hundred. So three hours will be one p.m. Okay. So that's something important to remember too. Uh, of course, a lot of the, the watches and clocks will be showing one p.m. just because they're imported. <laughs> but if you're if you're looking, you know, on the streets or something, they have those signs um, by the beach with the temperature and the clock. And there will be something short, let's say one o'clock in the afternoon, it will be 1300. So keep that in mind. 13 horas will be 1300 or 1 p.m. Okay, so if somebody says um, 10 o'clock, they're meaning in the morning. They, they don't mean. That's, that's correct. Yeah, if it will be in the afternoon, 10 o'clock will be 22, right? Yeah, the evening. So, yeah. Twenty-two that, something, twenty-two thirty. 
22 e 30. Or, yeah, I don't think you say 22 e meia. It just says 22 e 30 is 22 and 30 minutes. And so 10.30 will be 22 or 22 e meio or 22 e 30 or just say days uh, e meia da noite. You just add da noite is specifying night time. So days e meia will be 10.30 da noite will be at night. So 10.30 at night. Days e meia da noite. Okay, so you can specify at night if you don't want to convert uh, yeah, you can like the military that. time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so these, this will get us through the day. How about um, days of the week? Days of the week. The, uh, Monday will be segunda. So I'll just say the starting with the Monday. Okay. Segunda, segunda, terça, quarta, quinta, sexta, sábado e domingo. So I went from Monday through Sunday. So, segunda, terça, quarta, quinta, sexta, sábado e domingo. Okay, and I urge everybody to to practice those at home, and and, uh, (laughs) I'm not going to catch those all right now. I'm I'm barely catching. I couldn't catch the word no correctly. So, uh, but with a little practice, uh, anybody could pull this off, and uh, and that way you you show up on the right day. You know, that's that's very important. That's right. All right. Well, these are good, and uh, thank you uh, once again, or I might say, muy tu obrigado. De nada. All right. I want to thank our friend Claudio for that. Uh, it's been uh, a learning experience. I hope you've learned along uh, a little bit as well. You know, you might go to Brazil. You might never go to Brazil. You might have a, somebody come in town uh, that's from Brazil, and you could say a few words to them and just kind of welcome them. Uh, that way uh, our friend Claudio he's, he's going to be off the mat for a little bit here want to wish him well I hope you get well soon my friend yep get well soon rest up and I can't wait to get back on the mat with you Claudio so Gary we have been asking for uh, reviews on the podcast there uh, most common place to write a review is going to be on iTunes and uh, we're happy to send out uh, gee patches uh, for reviews of people who live in the United States it's just it's just affordable that way. We're just not a free gee patch. And if you live in the U.S., it makes the postage a lot less. So we just got a review in from our friend uh, Jay Coleman. Uh, Jay says he appreciates the guests as well as the insight from the host. Uh, well thought out interviews, great commentaries on many aspects of the art, often entertaining, and sometimes entertaining at least. Uh, I would consider The Brick one of the best podcasts on the subject. The energy is positive and respectful. One day he hopes to train with us, Gary. Oh boy, he uh, he must want some easy wins, <laughs> some easy wins, and hopefully he can help us out on some weak parts in our game. Uh, yep. Give us some some coaching advice there. Uh, thanks, Mister Coleman. Uh, thanks. Always a pleasure to hear from you. He's always on our Facebook page uh, supporting the show and telling people about us. So that means a lot to us. Thanks for writing a review, and I just mailed out your key patch the other day. Yep, and we also got another one that talked about our corny humor. So uh, that's what we're known for. So uh, we uh, we appreciate that. Somebody actually sees our corny humor. I'm glad some people can appreciate our corny humor. Gary, I think it's important that we have a good time on this podcast and not just learn about jiu-jitsu all the time. Uh, I think people see value in, in us enjoying the process and, and kind of just teasing each other a little bit. So, uh, hey, corny humor to some. Some people enjoy it. Some people just tolerate it to get to the uh, jiu-jitsu part of the show. So, uh there we go. Another great review from our friend there. 
Um, Coleman mentioned trying to train with us. Gary, how could somebody do this? Basically, all you got to do to train with us, if you happen to be in the Midwest, uh, coming through uh, Wichita, Kansas, we're right in the middle of the United States, uh, send us a line. Send us a message at bjjbrick at gmail.com. Send us a message on the Facebook page, and we'd love, love to get some mat time with you. Oh, absolutely, Gary. Wichita, Kansas, home of the BJJ Brick podcast. The air capital of the world. And capital of the BJJ Brick podcast of the world. Which is more important. <laughs> At least to uh, us. Yeah, it's a, we, we have a good time here, Gary. It's been a good yep, city for us. Jokes and jokes. Jokes and jokes, my friend. Well, uh, next week, like we said before, Travis Stevens, part two, uh, another article, another quote, and more jujitsu action coming at you. As always, stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to shower. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian jiu-jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu.